Have you played the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe DLC at all? Um, I don't think so. What would signify that it's the Deluxe version? Uh, the Deluxe is the version that comes out on Switch, as opposed to the regular Mario Kart 8, which came out for Wii U. Oh, okay, then yeah. And then the DLC recently came out for it, and it's going to be, I think, 32 new courses that are slowly released over time. Whoa. Okay. Basically, there are new Mario Kart courses for the first time in two years. I'm excited about it. <laughs> I definitely have played Mario Kart 8 Deluxe then because I played it on the Switch. I didn't like it, to be honest with you. I <laughs> love the Wii version much better. Much better. Oh, yes. We, unsurprisingly, perhaps are united in that opinion because the Wii version is just way more responsive to what you want to do. It has wheeling. It has drifting. Yep. I was ri actually writing something about this for my video game class today, but it really feels like, let's say that Mario Kart Wii is a finely tuned sports car. And Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is a Toyota Camry. <laughs> okay, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the Toyota Camry. It's just pillowy. It, it absorbs all the bumps. It doesn't really let you go on the track. Mm. That makes Mario Kart 8 Deluxe more friendly for beginners, but doesn't let you take the same kind of shortcuts and have the same amount of control as you used to have. Which is funny because I feel like it's the opposite when you look at Smash from the Wii to the Switch. Because when I go back and play Smash on the Wii, like I remember it being so fun as a kid, but now that I actually know what I'm doing, like it's really hard to do that on the Wii. But it's so much easier on the Switch to be good at it. Like actually good. So you're saying the Wii is more beginner friendly? For this, for Smash, yes. I would, I would say that. Like there's less controls there, you know? Because like if you play... Well, what did you play... Because I know you can do it with a nunchuck, and that's what I always did. For Wii U, I used Pro Controller, and for Switch, I used Pro Controller. Ah, well, okay, so, got it. I never turned the Wii remote sideways. That'd be terrible. You don't have enough buttons if you do the... You have to use a little imprecise D-pad, and you meant to press up, but you press left, so you die, or something like that. That's what I usually do when I'm playing on the Wii, which is not, like, it's not terrible. Like, I can get it done, I guess, but just, like, after having played on a much more precise, like, Switch controller, which I don't use the Pro Controller, I think... I just never got used to it. But when I use, like, the, just the regular Switch controller, it's much more, there's much more there to use, you know, than just the Wii controller sideways. But. Right, you've got so many choices. You can be so precise. I always go into the settings and make it be exactly what I want it to be so then I can go to other people's houses and not be able to play because <laughs> I'm used to, okay, this button jumps, this button taunts, this button grabs, and I change all the defaults to make it more comfortable. And then yeah. I'm super good when I do that, and I'm super bad when I don't do that. It's kind of like changing the keyboard shortcuts in apps. You go to other people's computers and can't use them because everything is wrong. I, I don't usually do that personally, but I get I get the struggle. I get it. Speaking of the Wii, though, can we just talk for a second about how good the music is? Like, I know it's kind of already been like it's already had its day, <laughs> but like, dude, I legit have some of the music from like the Wii on some of my playlists because it's just it's literally just jazz. You know what I mean? Like. It's just experimental jazz, and it's so good. You have Wii music on Spotify? Well, not official. People made a cover of the Wii music. Yes, they've done a version of it. Um, like the Wii, I think it's the shop theme is one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites, and obviously, like the me theme, you know, that's like, that's, like, come on, like who doesn't like that one? So, oh. So good. Like, that's just so pretty. Yeah. It's kind of a, a melody you hear over and over. You hear it on the main menu and everything. And then they sneak it in, but in a different key. Uh, in this, in the second section, which I'll play it for now.
No, that's really cool. And like, just, it has no business being that good. You know what I mean? <laughs> like at it all. It doesn't. But it is. Cause they just, I feel like they just put a bunch of jazz musicians in a room and said, go crazy, have fun. And then they did. And it was great. And what's hilarious is that it's so much skill applied to MIDI recordings just basic piano, unrealistic sounding drums, unrealistic sounding bass. But because the mm. musicians are skilled, we still like to listen to it. I really want to hear the We Shop music. Did you ever find a, a version of that? Uh, let me find a version of that. <laughs> I just want to marvel at it with you. Yeah, there it is. genetically designed to make you spend money exactly you cannot listen to that and not move your body in some sort of way like there's no way that and yes it's it's like elevator music sounding but like it's so good it's so good Ugh. yep so we music is good but have you ever listened to the mario kart 8 soundtrack which is the best nintendo music ever okay i've heard alleges alleges allegesments no that's definitely not a word i've heard tell (laughs) I have heard people say that it is a great soundtrack, but I've never actually listened to it all the way through. Although there's a Charles Cornell video, I think about about it. Like it's big, very it's very big band, isn't it? Yep. Here, let me play a little bit to get you hooked. Oh, this is the staff credits. That was good. And then there's this cool part with a drum solo as well. Let me find it. Someday I'll be that good, but not yet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. That's I mean, the bass line sounded really funky, and in addition to everything else, obviously. But Yeah, so you've got to listen to the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe soundtrack. Now, the interesting thing about the DLC for it that's come out recently is that many people, including me, think like those tracks that came out are not as high quality as the original tracks. Nintendo's just kind of saving money by making the tracks not as good as they used to be Mm. because they're basically taking a lot of tracks from Mario Kart Tour, which is the iPhone game, and moving them over with very little editing. So it's just they have kind of they're taking free tracks and essentially they're not as like detailed and good. But I think the one good thing that's coming out of the DLC right now is the fact that each new one comes with new big band music and rearranged songs. Ooh. Like the band isn't cheaping out. The band is still working hard, even though Nintendo's kind of cheaping out with the tracks themselves. <laughs> Dang. Well, that's really cool. No, I'll have to I'll have to listen to the actual soundtrack. And then whenever the DLC comes out, I mean, if my brother gets it, because I don't have a Switch, if he gets it, then I'll play it and listen. But you know, I ain't going to spend no money on a Switch right now. Come on. Have you seen the in gas prices economy? in this economy? Oh, <laughs> wow. That was amazing. <laughs> Anytime people in my life, family, otherwise, are like complaining about prices of things and how they're too high, I just go around saying, in this economy? <laughs> you want me to send my kids uh, to college in this economy? The joke is that people have been saying that for hundreds of years. And every time it's like, oh, no, really? The economy's bad this time. Mm-hmm, sure. Great. So that's what mm-hmm. they said uh, 200 years ago. And yeah, we think their economy was good. Take that. Yeah, very true. Very true. Really quick. I just 
got a notification that I have 15 minutes left of recording time. So I'm going to go through my computer real quick and see if there's anything <laughs> I can delete um, that I don't need. <laughs> so you just talk for a little bit and I will join in a second. Uh, let's see. Yes, in this economy, I think part of the reason people think that is that like, Yes, the price of things always goes up. And I and I agree that we're in a period of time where the prices are going up extra fast. But my not that educated opinion is that the market according to Economics 101, the market will find a new equilibrium. Eventually. It might take a while, but I think things will will figure themselves out. It's just basic economics. So I choose to be be optimistic when it comes to things costing a lot of money. Or gas prices doubling and such will finally give us the motivation we need to switch to an electric car based society mm. or a public transport based society and that means that it will be a net win for the environment and a net win for society so i try to be optimistic even though it's hard i guess that's good i bet you anything hybrid car sales and electric cars will be through the roof especially hybrid cars because you can basically go 50 or 60 miles probably even a little bit more now that i'm thinking about it on a tank of gas and you're just like your gas almost never runs out so you only have to pay a big expensive price every month mm. Yeah, that's very true. If I had the money for an electric car, I would, I love my car, but like not that much. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like the, the engine is not that important to me. So <laughs> uh, if, if I had the chance. You're not like a, a gearhead going in and getting your branches and working on your car and getting like your hands dirty. And it's like it, the car for you is more utilitarian in nature. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I think there are so few people with like, oh, I love my car kind of thing. So it's kind of. Like once we start to realize, okay, what you, you don't actually love your car. What you love is that your car can get you places. Very true. And there's this actually interesting YouTube channel. I'll link to it called Not Just Bikes. And Not Just Bikes is a person that lives in Amsterdam, Netherlands. And so he makes videos about how here, what you do, you ride your bike or you take the train. And very few people own cars. And the people that do own cars only use them for like traveling to literal other countries. Hmm. This channel opened my eyes up to the fact that the U.S. is not very bicycle friendly. You can't get very far safely. Like, yeah, you can go on the Mm -hmm. sidewalks and stuff, but it doesn't really give like safe ways for you to walk and ride your bike places. Like, oh, I'd like to ride my bike to the grocery store. It's tough to safely do that. Yes, you can like go on the sidewalk and go through the mud and ditch and like through a pond and all sorts of like you can try to do it. But like the bike lanes aren't that safe. There are things on the side of the road. They're not protected. There's there are potholes. People randomly park in them and do weird things. And it's just like it's not really designed for bicycles to take you far. And things are so far away from each other as well. So that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Basically, if we were to redesign society from scratch to allow bicycles to be part of the equation, life would be so much better because you wouldn't. You are unfortunately kind of forced to buy a car. This is something that bothers me. If you want to have a life and go places, you have to buy an expensive car. You don't have a choice. It's not, oh, no, thanks. I'll just walk and ride my bike. No, you you can't. You cannot walk and ride your bike. In the Netherlands, you can ride, walk and ride your bike if you want. You can buy a car if you want. You cannot buy a car. It's like the car isn't optional. And big expensive purchases like that that aren't optional, that just means you have to work harder and be in debt. And it's just, it's not a good situation. Very true. And I think, well, I was, it's funny. I was talking to a classmate today and she was like, yeah, I want to move to Chicago so I can live close to the city and not have a car. Mm-hmm. There are specific places like LA or New York, right? Where like you can get away with not having a car. Um, but like the price of living, you know what I mean? Goes exponentially up when you live in a city like that. Right. So I guess you pay for it anyway, but I don't know. I guess you can make it work in a city. Well, I think that's one cool thing about college is that you are living in a mostly a walkable community. Maybe not super walkable, but I don't know. Campus does 
at least IU does, I think, a reasonably good job, like for by U.S. standards, a reasonably good job giving you places to cycle and, and everything. And like the Ballantine bike hall, which I put my bike in today. Have you ever used that before? I have not, but I've seen it. Is that free for everybody? Yeah, it's free for everyone. Wow. You just tap your crimson card. The door is kind of cool. It automatically unlatches and opens up. That's awesome. And like stays open for a while so you can get your bike through. And it's very, very helpful. So I did that so that it would my bike wouldn't get rained on and be all like bad to sit on. Mm. So that was helpful. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of walking, I drove to CSF this morning and rode the bus to class, realized I was super hungry and <laughs> walked all the way home and then walked all the way back out for class. Huh. Would you like to to guess when I got home, I weighed my backpack because I was like, this is really heavy. <laughs> Would you like to guess how heavy my backpack was? Your backpack was, I guess I don't know what's, can you like explain what's in it? So I at least have like a fighting chance. Um, Laptop charger some books some books okay that some books is like are we talking like five calculus textbooks or like I, I don't want to tell you i just okay. just guess i'm gonna based on the fact we're having the story i think it was five calculus textbooks so i'm gonna say 18 pounds it was 20.1 pounds oh my gosh yeah i <laughs> walked ridiculous. from campus and back with tw- well okay when i got to my house i took a few books out that i don't really need but that didn't lighten the load very much <laughs> I'll just, I'll humor you real quick. I have my laptop, which is like four pounds Mm -hmm. in my, in my backpack with a charger. Probably makes it like five pounds. (laughs) I have a notebook, like a big notebook, a small notebook, uh, mother night, uh, a leadership book, a, my Bible. I have uh, Harlem shuffle. And then I also had thrown uh, live no lies, which I just got. I haven't read it yet, but I just got the book. Hey, let's go. Yeah. So that's exciting. I'm excited. And my camera, my film camera that I carry around. So that's like everything in my little book compartment. Doesn't your film camera get crushed by the weight of your 77 book, other books? When you like oh, <laughs> go around a corner, it's like crushes against the side or whatever. You would think that, but I put it on the top so it doesn't like, oh, like it doesn't get crushed by anything. So yeah, and I can just take it out and take a picture if I want, which is cool. Um, but that's all in addition to like, I have like you know, computer stuff like in the, in a little pot. So like, it just is a lot, man. And I was like dying on the way back. It was, it was, it was not fun. And I, I learned then that that is probably the last time I will ever walk to or from campus. If it's my choice. Why didn't you ride your bike? Then you only have to have 20 extra pounds for a few minutes instead of a long time. That's true. So like I said, I parked at CSF. So my car was here Oh, gotcha. and I was on campus without my bike. Usually I would bike because I, that's just quicker, but Today it was raining and cold and I didn't want to deal with it. So I just, I parked at CSF. So there you go. So are you going to put snacks in there to make it more heavy, but then you won't have to go back? <laughs> I think I might. I meant to grab a Pop-Tart on the way out, but I forgot. So what are you going to do? What you going to do? Walk home apparently. Uh, so I assume you did delete some big files. <laughs> yeah, I did. I've got seven hours of recording space now. I del- <laughs> I uninstalled, yeah, I uninstalled Photoshop and Premiere. So I don't, I don't use them very much anymore. <laughs> Anyway, I have a question for you. Does this guy sound like Bo Burnham on the link? Every blessing you pour out, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because I don't think this guy actually sounds like Bo Burnham, but the thing is like when he does the vibrato part, it sounds a lot like him. Can you do that again? Every blessing you pour out, I'll... Yeah. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, on the out, on, on the word out, yes, absolutely. Because the rest of the time he doesn't sound like Bo Burnham much, but I was just sort of cherry picking the four seconds where he does, in my opinion, because I was practicing for worship. I was like, oh, it's Bo Burnham. He's moved to worship music. Uh, no, he's not <laughs> moved to worship music. This is not what's happening. Wow. That would have been insane, though. Big joke. Bo Burnham does a Christian album. <laughs> <laughs> so progressive. Yeah, honestly. Before the podcast, I found myself looking at pimple popping videos. And I wondered, why am I watching this? Why am I continuing to watch this? Because I kid you not, you can't see my face, but it was like scrunched up and like, you know, like, but I kept watching. Why? Why? Why is this the case? Why do you do this to yourself, Joe? I don't know. This is so bad. Step into the light. Don't do it. What? What is your experience with pimple popping videos, huh? Never watching them because they're horrible. That's my experience with them. <laughs> they're never recommended to me. I think the closest thing I've had to it is like there was was some like chiropractic style videos where it's like, oh, let me pop your neck. Oh, let me pop your back. I watched a few of those and I think it was kind of, I didn't find it too gross. It was just like, nor did I find it super satisfying to be honest. It was just like, oh, this is interesting how they, how they work on people's backs. I know there are some people that are like addicted to those videos because, oh, this is so satisfying, popping the necks, popping the back. That part's kind of gross in my opinion. That's just, I think that's the closest I've gotten to it. I think maybe it's just there's this fascination because yes, it's gross, but the situation is being taken care of. So even though you're grossed out in the moment, your brain is happy to see that, okay, someone's working on it and they're getting rid of the bad thing so that it can go the skin can go back to normal but yeah that's disgusting you got to stop that i'm as your friend <laughs> you've got to stop it's like being morbidly curious almost you know it's like i, I think vsauce has a video about that huh. for some reason we just like when you see a train wreck your first instinct is to look at it you know what i mean mm -hmm. or like a car on the side of the street that's crashed like you're you are like trying to figure out what's going on you can't stop looking at it I don't know. Like, why do we do that? What happens for me is the part of my brain that thinks it's gross overpowers my curiosity. So I'm just never tempted to look at pimple popping videos. But, you know, if it's the case mm. for you, no shade, no lemonade. Uh, whatever makes you happy. It's a free country. It's just very gross in my opinion. All right. All right. I respect it. I respect it. How was your spring break? Well, it was okay, actually. Gosh, it was quick. It was quick. I was just here. I didn't. I didn't go anywhere. Yeah, I worked on some stuff I needed to do. I hung out with some people. I worked. I worked um, all day, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Delivering the food to the people of Bloomington. Yes. Delivering Jesus chicken. And it sucked my soul right out of my body. <laughs> what? Okay. Good to know. Well, yeah, just after like three days of like the same thing for like nine hours, it's like, oh boy, anything gets boring after that. Well, isn't that like what a job is? Well, yeah. Okay, true. <laughs> but like, I mean, I... My job at Chick-fil-A, which I do like my job. Let me just say that. My job at Chick-fil-A is I, I walk into the store, I grab the food, and I take it to people and deliver it. And like, you know, I'd probably do that, gosh, a couple times an hour. I don't know. The point is I just did it a lot. As opposed to a job where you're constantly like faced with, oh, new challenges and how are we going to do this? As opposed to just driving, okay, drive there, drive back, drive there, drive back. Exactly. Pay for gas with the company card, $60 out of the company card. That's... In, in this, this economy, economy, it yeah, it helps a lot. <laughs> it sure does. It sure does. Um, but yeah, so mine was good. Mine was boring as well. I didn't go anywhere. I was talking to most people, and most people didn't go anywhere. But then every now and then you talk to someone that was like, oh, yeah, I went to Paris. And you're like, oh, my gosh, you're making me feel inadequate. But joke's on them because I do all my traveling on the off season, not on the on season. Take that. Yeah, take that, honestly. Did you watch any shows or anything or movies or anything like that? I did finish a lot of books. 
Like that's what I spent so much time doing. Mm. And I'd like to introduce to you, you've heard of the life-changing magic of tidying up by Marie Kondo, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you haven't heard of the life-changing magic of Marie Kondo? Mm, I don't think, no. Okay, basically there's this famous, it, somewhat famous book, not that famous because Joe apparently hasn't heard of it, but Marie Kondo is this <laughs> Japanese organizing professional. She has written a book to help people clean up their lives and do so in kind of like in a bit of a... It's more like working on your mind than it is working on your surroundings. So it's like your attitude to clutter is like, oh, all this stuff is important. I might need it someday. I don't want to get rid of my you know, favorite shirt that's a million sizes too small or whatever. And then what she says is, oh, no, you what you do, you thank your items. Thank you, shirt, for serving me. And then you get rid of it. That's her most famous one, I think. But she has a lot of mental tricks kind of when it comes to tidying and cleaning up your life. It's a very good book. But that's not the point. I mean, anyway, check that one out. Add to your reading list. Okay. I'm essentially riffing on that book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And I'm here to talk about the life-changing magic of not finishing books. Because I think in school, school teaches you a lot of good things. But it unfortunately teaches you, you can never, ever let go of this book. Because you've got to read it. The you know test is on it. The essay is on it. There's no way that you're going to get out without reading this book. Now, I guess you like could look at cliff notes and everything. But for the most part, you are very heavily encouraged to keep keep the books that you start there's a quote by john irving that says grown-ups shouldn't finish books they're not enjoying now the reason it says grown-ups is because otherwise this quote would be used for kids to not have to do their schoolwork but at this point i'm going to count myself as a grown-up i'm going to say that i should not finish books i'm not enjoying because there's only so much time in my life and i've got to be more picky so that way I i can get the bad books out of the way and more quickly move to the good books that will help me yeah i've been prioritizing enjoying reading over just the sheer number of books, because don't get me wrong, like I've talked about, I want to this year read lots more books than I did last time. But that doesn't mean that I should just finish books I don't like for the sake of seeing the number go up. Mm. I should hope the number goes up with books that each one on the list taught me something, or it was this really great and memorable story that kind of changed the way I think for a fiction book. Nonfiction can be easier for me, because I generally will have a medium opinion on most nonfiction books. But for fiction books, they are either amazing or boring, in my opinion. I'm either enthralled and I want to finish it in just a day or two and it's this is the best book ever, or it's like, okay, this is dragging along, I don't like it. So my goal, let's say I have like 10 fiction books, maybe only two or three of them are really grabbing me and really making me want to finish them and be excited about them. So what I need to do is I need to be more quick to discard the seven. It's like I'm separating the bad stuff from the good stuff and trying to sort of cut my losses. So that's what I did. I had this big long list. I have two Apple Notes, one for the books I finished for recording uh, that and knowing the number and then i have another apple note for ones that are coming up now what i did was i basically went through as many of those as i could well, i just went down the list get start this book okay and then if i didn't like it delete it without even thinking about it okay next book and then a couple chapters do i like it no okay delete it without even thinking about it and then i went down and got rid of tons and tons of books i put them on there i thought i wanted to read them maybe i was interested in it at some point or maybe i thought they were going to be more interesting than they were point is I was very much not interested in those books anymore, and so I was able to get it down to just a few just a few ones, which we can talk about here, but I went for quality over quantity because if I was still on that first book, I'd still be you know dragging my feet and not wanting to not want wanting to go ahead with it and everything. but I'm just telling and encouraging all of our listeners to not finish books you don't like. finish books for school, of course, but if you're trying to read for fun, I think that's why lots of people don't read for fun they feel like, oh, the oh, the only options out there are ones I don't want to read, so I'm just going to never read, which isn't the solution. You There are thousands and thousands and thousands of books out there. So much we can never read at all. So you're telling me you can't find anything you like? I doubt it. Mm. 
And that's, I'd say that's really wise. Cause like, I feel like a lot of the reason, like you said, is just this, like this perfectionist mentality where you have to finish every book you start. And I feel like that's BS because like, if you don't like a book, just don't read it. Like you start it and you, and you, you know, just don't read it if you don't like it. Um, I did that with, uh, I bought a Kurt Vonnegut book called Player Piano and I read a few chapters and I, I didn't hate it, but it didn't grab me. And so I just didn't finish it, you know? I wasted some money on it, but you know, it's whatever. Um, in this economy, <laughs> yeah, it's whatever. But, um, in this economy, in this economy <laughs> it's interesting you talk about Kurt Vonnegut because one of my favorite books is The Queen's Gambit, which I reread recently. The Queen's Gambit is by Walter Tevis. And so I was like, okay, this book is great. I wonder what else he has and like what maybe the other stuff he has is as good as this. And spoiler alert, it's not. It's not as good. Oh, man. It feels like he kind of struck gold with this idea. It's just like, this is great. It enthralls me. I love it. And the other ones are just not as good. Because you would hope that with an author, you really... And it was the same thing with Margaret Atwood, unfortunately, because I really liked The Handmaid's Tale and the sequel, which came out 20 years later, called The Testaments. But then I started Margaret Atwood's other stuff, and it was very clear, like, right away, this is not for me. This is not something I'm going to enjoy for a variety of reasons. So it's just tough because you find yeah. a book you like and then once if it's fiction, you say, and even this is the case for nonfiction too, let's be honest, but oh great, now I have this author I know I like and but you've only read one of the books and so you're making this false assumption and now you go to the other books and they're just really not what you were hoping for. So now you're kind of back at square one trying to find something good. Yeah. Now I'm sure there are some authors where it's like, oh, everything they write is great. But even I'm thinking about like, oh, J.K. Rowling, Rowling, however you want to say your name. If you go to her <laughs> other books after Harry Potter, they're really not as good, not even close. And like other people online agree with me on that. Yeah. She even did some books under another name so people wouldn't buy it just because of her name. And I went to try those out. Those are like some mystery books. Those aren't as good either. Dang. <laughs> it almost feels like the author's talent doesn't even matter that much. It's just how good of an idea did the author have and how did they execute it? Mm. You can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't write well, it doesn't matter. And then again, you can have a mediocre idea and try to be as good of a writer as you can, but still, that's not going to go anywhere. So it's like you need that lightning in a bottle where I'm an author who has a great idea. I'm well suited to write it and and show this world off that I have to other people. Either of those things aren't true. It's just it's not going to really land well. Yep. So that's why good books are hard to find in this economy. In this economy. <laughs> um, can we name the episode that? <laughs> Heck yeah. I was, I'm actually thinking. <laughs> great. Um, well, and that's why I loved... Well, okay, like when I think about the books, the fiction books I love, like Dune, such a unique world and then such a beautiful way to write about it. Even like Harlem Shuffle, I mean, we were talking about this before we started, but just, I mean, his ability to write, I mean, there's there's passages where he compares like a person to like a street map and like your main streets of what people know about you and like the back road, you know, just like these beautiful metaphors and just... And, and all of it takes place around this, you know, 60s Harlem crime, you know, divided identity sort of themes like in this world. But the writing is so beautiful that honestly, I don't care what he's writing about. Like the fact that the story progresses is cool. But just like the the way that he writes, like Colson Whitehead is just amazing. Um, I don't know if you've read any of his other books, but I, I he as an author is just phenomenal. But I absolutely agree. Like it takes a good idea and a great writer to make a good book, in my opinion. It's the same deal for me with The Handmaid's Tale because there are some passages. Okay, so the idea of the story, the world has fallen down because of a war and there's like this new society that's taken over that essentially like 
puts women, quote unquote, in their proper place, essentially only as wives and as like to have babies is sort of their own, their main job. Mm. And so it's like about a handmaiden, which is like the, the code for the person whose only job is to have babies, what she's doing, what her life is like. She's like, I think mentally slowly kind of shutting down over time because it's like this such this traumatic environment that she's uh, kind of forced to be in. But that's a really good idea. But if you weren't a good writer, it would, it would just be like kind of boring to read about that. And then similarly, if you were a great writer but had a bad idea, you can't do it. So you really do need both. But I think it's just this amazing combination of such like a, a good and spooky and like very, very disturbing uh, like idea of what the society is like. And some of the passages in there of just how her mind is like working and she's just like it's kind of dissociating from her situation a little bit. It's just like and I wish I highlighted them more on Kindle. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing any highlights on here that have anything to do with it. But it's, it's just such a beautiful book. It's like poetry in some po- – it's not rhyming poetry, but it's just very, very beautiful stuff. Mm. And that's – I mean, I feel like that's the kind of fiction that grabs us because it stands out from the, you know, typical textbook style, like, you know, boring writing. Like, beautiful writing sticks out. And I feel like that's why popular books are popular, you know, Um because of the way and the style that the writer uses. It's, yeah, it's great. It's great. So I guess, Joe, what's your attitude? Are you afraid to drop books? Are you fine to drop books? What do you think? Um, I'm definitely more afraid. <laughs> like the like taking Mother Night out of my backpack today was like, I was like, oh man, like I want to finish that. But I was real with myself. I'm like, I only read that at work. So like, why am I carrying it around like all day, every day to everywhere I go? So it's like, you have to be really bored to do it. So why bother? Exactly. And and I mean, I do enjoy the book and I'm going to finish it eventually, but it's not something that like, I have a specific place that I'm using it and I'm not using it like regularly. So why have it in, in, uh, in my backpack? And so, and I mean, I've done the same thing, the crisis of innovation and uh, player piano. Um, like those are books that I bought and I'm not going to finish because they're not good. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just didn't enjoy it. They didn't grab me, you know, they lost my interest. And so, you know, I don't want to waste my time. So I, I think I have, I can do it. It just, I think it takes a little bit more from me because I want to hold on. Like I want to prove it to myself that I can read it. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, if I don't enjoy it, like I'm just wasting time, I could spend reading a book I enjoy. I feel like I've just pr- already proven that to myself to some extent with, I mean, I finished so many books I didn't really like just to say I finished them. And I could have used that time to, as, I mean, in a non-school context, I could have used that time better to go find good books I really liked. Because I, I really think like, okay, so <laughs> uh, this is this is like something I don't, I'm not super proud of, but every now and then I go to the bookstore just to like get ideas of what to check out from the library essentially so it's like sorry local <laughs> bookstores i'm basically like wow. going in and not buying anything from you but it's, it's just kind of difficult because there are so many options of books but it's hard to know which are good ones and which are not good ones so if you if there's like a table oh here's the one our staff really likes oh here's like some good ones that recently came out and everything and so you can go and obviously like oh don't judge a book by its cover but when you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of books at the same store you kind of have to judge by the cover. Okay, does this title look interesting? Does the art look interesting? So you kind of flip through, get an idea of what it's about. And then maybe you'll look at like 100 books and let's say like 20 of them are interesting. And then let's say like be optimistic and say you really like 10 of them and you don't finish 10 of them. And then it's like, okay, cool. So you went to the bookstore and you got 10 good book ideas that lasted you several months or something like that. So, or maybe even half a year, who knows what your speed is. But I obviously over break, I finished a bunch of books. And so my list was really empty and now I filled it back up and I'm going to 
be working on that list for a long time. Good. That's great. Do you ever think you'll read, this is a side question, do you ever think you'll read the Lord of the Rings? Never. Never. Why? I started them and I didn't like it, so I won't finish it. No, I did. Dang. The Hobbit okay. was pretty good. The Hobbit was pretty good. I did like that. I like The Hobbit too. But The Lord of the Rings Volume 1 was bad and I did not like it, so not finishing it. <laughs> I respect it. As long as you tried it, that's good. Yeah, I don't, it, it's not like I'm... Oh, it's so popular, must be bad. I, no, I, I tried it. It seemed like it was interesting. Uh, you know, an interesting concept, but no. I also didn't really like the movies because I think they're unnecessarily long and weird, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, I draw the line there, but we can get back into that. <laughs> Don't tell Jack Stanley. Have Jack Stanley and Soren on at the same time to defend their <laughs> honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be great. One of the good books I read is called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, Joe. He's a promising author. I think he might he might go somewhere, so you got to watch him. I don't think anyone knows about him yet, though. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe I've... Yeah, maybe I've heard of him once or twice, but I'm not sure. Why don't you just tell me about him? <laughs> yeah, I bet he's going to get get more popular once people find out about oh, him. Yeah. But for now, he's just like the small indie author. Yep. So basically, <laughs> he writes all this spiritual stuff, if you're not familiar with him. He's a very well-known Christian author. You know, he wrote in like kind of the 40s and 50s most of the time, but his writing really does stand the test of time. And so I read a while back Mere Christianity by him. Uh, just very briefly, that is basically explaining what it means to be a Christian and sort of like how he tries to live with the knowledge that he's a Christian. How do I live my life kind of deal? Mere Christianity for him is like, okay, this we're not talking Catholic. We're not talking Protestant. We're not talking any particular like type of Christianity. We're just saying what I'm, I am thinking of myself as merely a Christian. And so as people who are merely Christians, not like throwing in any other details into the equation, how should we behave and how should we act? And so I didn't love necessarily love every chapter, but there were some that were like, okay, this chapter is, is ridiculously good and very relevant. And I'm sure everyone has different chapters that speak to them at, at different times. But so check that one out, but then especially check out the screw tape letters. What this is, is this is kind of a satirical look. There is the junior demon Wormwood in this book. And the junior demon Wormwood is learning to tempt people. And so he's writing letters to his uncle, who's also a demon, named Screwtape. And his uncle is way more experienced at tempting humans. So you never see Wormwood's letters, but you do see the entire book is made of Screwtape's responses to him. And so Screwtape is like, oh, in your last letter, you did this, but I would do this. So basically, for these demons, the humans are the patients, and the enemy, all capitalized to make it sinister, is God. So it's kind of like a reverse look at Christianity. The enemy is not the devil. But the devil's instead of referring to the enemy as God. A little confusing at first, but then you sort of get used to it. Wormwood is trying to work on this human patient. We don't really know anything about him, except that he's just this, you know, guy probably in Britain or something who's being tempted by the demon Wormwood. Screwtape says, oh, you should do it this way. Instead of trying to tempt him to do this, you should tempt him to do this. It's really, really interesting. It's like a, a, almost a reverse psychology thing, because in the intro of the Screwtape letters, basically C.S. Lewis says, there are two mistakes that can happen when we come to thinking of Satan as Christians and thinking about temptation. We can either think about essentially demonic stuff too much, which is not good to think about too much for obvious reasons, or we can think about it too little to where we think like, oh, temptation, I'm above that. No, I'm never tempted to do anything wrong like that kind of deal. So it's like kind of becomes invisible. So it's like somewhere in the middle is the right way to go. We think about it a little bit, but not too much. So the most interesting thing I've gotten from this book is that Wormwood is trying to, I think, like tempt the patient to like not go to church and Screwtape is like, okay, I'm just going to quote, quote directly. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought to at least be violently attached to some party within it, end quote. So what he's saying is that if you cannot be kept out of church as a Christian, the best strategy for the devil is to either tempt you to be violently attached to some party within it or to be on an endless search for like the quote unquote best church. 
I feel like I know people who are on the endless search for the quote unquote best church. All churches are flawed. Human beings are flawed. So they make flawed churches, of course. But basically like two things that can keep people from being like as fully established in the church is always searching for that like new and better church on the horizon. Or it's becoming like so attached to very specific parts of your religion and like not budging on them that you are like spending more time arguing about it than you are actually following God. And I will leave it at that. But ideally, Screwtape would be able to tempt people to not go to church at all. But if he can't, his backup plan is to tempt them to try out tons of different churches so they can't get established looking for the best one or to just like argue about their faith in a way that is like causing issues rather than causing unity. So it's this interesting reverse psychology look at the devil. So, and once we know the kind of the tricks, we can not be tempted ourselves, which is very helpful. It's kind of like a reverse psychology deal, like a video by CGP Gray, bingo. We haven't talked about him in a while. He has a video called seven ways to maximize misery. Mm-hmm. This is a video that's actually based on a book called how to be miserable, which I'll put that book in the show notes too. It's really good. But basically looking at things in the reverse way can be very helpful because how do we maximize misery? Oh, we lay in bed all day. We don't exercise. We don't, you know, we don't eat good food. We don't talk to friends. And then if you're describing how to be miserable and realize that it's like similar to your own life and your own life is miserable, that means, guess what? Well, it's like, no wonder you're miserable. You've got to reverse, looking at reverse psychology. Now it's time to reverse the reverse psychology and get yourself in a better spot. I started the Screwtape Letters and I've also started Mere Christianity. Um, <laughs> have I finished either of those books? No. Not because they're not good, but just because I think I ran out of steam on them at the time. Maybe that's something I can do this summer and try to finish those. I don't know. But I I really, so to start, I loved Mere Christianity because like it had so many good foundational truths in it. Um, even just about like, like I remember there was a chapter early on talking about how like the minute that two guys disagree and one of them says that's not fair, like you have admitted to a higher moral standard that you're supposed, yes. you're both supposed to know about. Like just stuff like that, those simple basic truths of like f- almost philosophy and logic, like those are really good to have in your back pocket um, as a Christian. So I really loved my Christianity. I think I got about halfway. I got around where like marriage is, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I stopped there. Uh, screw tape letters. I got a few chapters in. I remember there was a chapter or a letter, I guess, where he talked about like how his patient, he was really close to thinking about God. And then like screw tape was like, Oh, but remember you're hungry. Like, remember that? Yes. And like, yes. and he, and so he didn't like, it was a good distraction. And like, just to know that. And again, it's not like there's a book in the Bible. That's like the demons thoughts. Like, it, you know, CS Lewis <laughs> didn't get this straight from the Bible, but like, you know, we do have verses that are like, you know, the devil, like he prowls around, like looking for someone to devour. And, you know, all of these verses you can kind of uh, reverse engineer to get where C.S. Lewis got, um, I think is really cool, like you said, to do that reverse psychology thing and then know like, you know, oh, like, is that like, is this the devil distracting me? Or like, is this the enemy working to try and like knock me off my game or my balance or like, you know, take me away from this worship. Like I feel that all the time in worship personally. I don't know. I feel like we are probably similar in that way. Like it's hard for me to sit back. It's hard for me to enjoy like a worship service because in my head, because I lead worship and I'm on like a couple of bands, like I look at how things are going and I'm like, Oh, that, that somebody messed up there. Or like somebody missed their cue or like, Oh, this song is weird. Oh, that progression is fun. Like, you know, it's hard for me to like enjoy the service because I'm thinking about the details and I feel like the enemy uses that uh, as a way to get in between 
me and like God in that moment. But I mean, that's just a specific example. I feel like we're pretty similar on that. We're very similar on that. I think there's a lot of ways the enemy can get in between me and worship because I was actually watching some elevation videos. Uh, Say what you want about elevation. They have extremely high production value, which I appreciate and can (laughs) definitely like kind of enjoy. And it's cool to see how they do things. But then again, I'm not worshiping if I'm thinking about like, oh, they have this camera on a crane. Wow, look at that. Whoa, they're like, this is how they're switching things. They have this MIDI cue and this like this person's like using keyboard shortcuts on Ableton. And you're thinking about a (laughs) bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with God. It's like, you remember like, the the chapter that was like, oh, if we can't keep them out of church, do this. Well, for me, it's you won't be able to keep me away from worshiping. You will be able to distract me from worshiping. Yep. I think the best part for me is like the worship at CSF is pretty good for me because like it's very bare bones. So there's nothing to, and we generally don't mess up, at least I like to think so, but mm-hmm. it's hard to find anything to be distracted by because it's pretty low tech environment. Now, I think it's reverses to a point because if the environment is high-tech enough and everything runs exactly how it should be, I actually think I'll, it will become invisible, but maybe that's a story for another day. Point is the devil has no shortages of ways to distract me from worship, thinking about cool progressions, thinking about like, oh, that fill was kind of weird. Maybe I would have mm-hmm. done it differently or something. And like, oh, this key seems different than what I'm used to. That's weird. And like, yeah, it's just, it's bad. And I don't know if I can fully block out those thoughts forever but I can hopefully know they're there and then try to move my mind away as best I can. And that's something I've been trying to combat recently. Just like these distractions of like, like I'll just, I'll talk about last night for, for example, our church is doing a uh, worship night on this coming Sunday, the 27th. I don't know when this podcast will come out, but this coming Sunday, the 27th, Sherwood Oaks is doing a, a worship night. And so I'm on the band and, um, I was an idiot and I didn't, I forgot that we, I was even on the band. And then Quentin, who's been on before, texted us on Sunday night and was like, Hey, we have a rehearsal tomorrow night. And I was like, Oh, forgot that I was even on. And also Monday night rehearsal. That's fun. Um, and so beforehand I was stressing out cause I didn't know any of the songs and like, I was trying to listen to him in a scramble on the way there. And all these lead parts for synth and it's like, ah, and I got there and I was like, okay. Like, I'm going to do my best, but like, this is just God. Like, God's going to have to just do this through me. And like, I am nothing and he is everything. And anything that comes from me that's good is going to be from him. And um, some of those thoughts I got from this liturgy that I've been looking at. And if you don't know what a liturgy is, it's like, essentially the way I like to think about it is that it's a, or at least in the context I know it in, is a prayer-like thing. Sometimes it can be really short. Sometimes it can be really long, but it's essentially like, think of like the book of common prayer. You know, it's like a a written out, not a Bible verse, something you can kind of memorize. It's really cool. You can make your own. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a genuinely cool thing. And so I have a friend who has a book called every moment holy. And it's just like liturgies, like there are some in there for like liturgy for when you see a, a tree blowing in the wind and like, you know, it's like, it's, it, that one might be like, God, thank you for like the wind that you breathe and like the spirit that you give, you know, stuff like that. And so there's this one in there called uh, a liturgy before taking the stage. And I'm just going to read it. It's kind of long, but yeah, please. Uh, it's really good. I, I like it a lot. So, uh, so I've, I've tried to take this thinking into every time I do worship now, what have I to offer here that might sustain the souls of others? Alone, I have little more to show beneath this scrutiny of lights than my own pride and insecurity, my craving for praise, and my fear of rejection. Rather, let me offer something greater in this place, O Christ. As I step onto this stage, meet me, 
amidst the wreckage of my ego and my woundedness, and through me, give what I alone cannot. I offer you all that I have, my talents, my training, the years spent honing and crafting and creating, my passions, my personality, my history, the many sacrifices I and others have made in order for me to be here. I give you even my brokenness, of which I am also a steward. I offer now these incomplete and insufficient provisions, remembering how you and your days among us twice blessed inadequate offerings, fashioning them into miraculous feasts that would sustain crowds in their hard journeys. I pray that you would likewise receive and bless and multiply my own meager gifts, Jesus, for the benefit of all those who have gathered here. Let these humble elements in your hands become a true nourishment for those who hunger for you. And for those who have not yet wakened to their deepest hungers, let my brief service to them be like the opening of a window through which the breezes of a far country might blow, stirring eternal longings to life. Take this tiny heap of my talents and my brokenness alike, this jumble of what is best and worst in me, and meld it to the greater work of your spirit, using each facet as you will, so that even as sunlight coursing through a cracked prism, your grace might somehow be revealed upon this stage in whatever gloried and peculiar patterns you have fashioned me to display. Amen. So like, how great is that? You know what I mean? Like the beauty in the words and the humbleness of just like reminding yourself of his presence and like what he can do through you. And like I said, there's, I mean, there's, there's, you know, I remember there's a one for like a liturgy upon seeing a beautiful person or a liturgy, you know, for beekeeping. I think there was one in there. Oh, wait, what? I know. Right. It's, it's, but like, I think it's the point of it is like, you know, the more you involve God in your daily life, the the closer you get to him. You know what I mean? Um, which I, I think is really cool. I need to buy the book to be honest with you, but, um, but yeah, so as far as worship goes, that's something that I've been trying to implement is just this idea that like, I am like, I, I love that image at the end, like sunlight shining through a cracked prism, you know, like something good from him that can shine through me, even though I'm broken is great. And and for the record, last night I was completely unprepared and um, I felt like it went as well as it could have gone, to be honest with you. And I think that's all God and like, you know, Quentin, if you're listening, thank you for being gracious with me on like not learning all my parts beforehand and and all that. But like, yeah, I feel like, I don't know, it's just cool to offer something like that to him and have him do something really cool with it. So anyway, that was kind of a long rant, but I don't know. What do you think? (sighs) That's intense. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. That was kind of a lot. No, no, no. I'm sure that if I were to listen slash read slash do go through that prayer, every time before serving on in a stage capacity, I'm sure I would do better. Mm. I think that liturgy is implying that as a person that plays drums, like kind of the less I do, the better. <laughs> mm. Like the less fills, the less weird stuff. Because obviously I want to do as well as I can and not make mistakes. But in trying to not make mistakes, it's easy to have ego come in because like, oh, I've worked so hard and there, there will be no mistakes and it will be all so good. And then, <laughs> then that's in trouble. Because like I think it's, it's such a fine line. You don't want to make a ton of mistakes and have it sound bad, but you don't want to play so well that you're like in your own little world and not even worshiping as the person. Mm. Like, cause I do my best to, if it's not a terribly hard beat, I do my best to sort of sing along and, and be part of it as best I can. But, and then, but I have to balance that with, if I, if I think too much about the lyrics, then I'm going to be on autopilot and I won't be playing well anymore. What other liturgies have you been 
seeing are there any others that are as good as that one well so that i I took a picture of that one that's why i I was able to read it all the way through um i think i took a picture of the upon tasting a pleasurable food this one's really this one's pretty short for the infinite variety of your creative expression i praise you O god you have made even the necessary act of eating a nurturing comfort and a perpetual delight and that's the whole thing or like there's one in here that says it's upon experiencing cheering laughter I praise you, O God, for these inexplicable gifts of mirth and merriment and laughter, delighting in such foretaste of the wellsprings of eternal joy that ever bubble and flow within your glad trinity. That one's kind of hard to read. It's these little reminders of, you know, because again, like, you know, if you read that enough, the next time you see, you know, The next time you eat a good food, right? Like you just gonna, like you're gonna think about that. Like, man, thank you, God, for, and it may not be that exactly, but just like reminding, and I think that's why it's called every moment holy is it's about every moment, you know, you can, you can make anything about God. You know what I mean? You can make the bad parts you day about God. You can make the great parts you day about God and just praising him for who he is and reminding, reminding yourself of who you are and who he is like, and who he can be through you. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I think it's really cool. I, I need to buy the book, like I said, but um, it is a wise spiritual discipline for Christians, you know, just to to continually make God a, a, a part of your daily life. What's the liturgy upon seeing a beautiful person? Upon seeing a beautiful person. Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. That's a good one. Right? And and so like what, what you can derive out of that is just this simple concept of let whatever I'm feeling not twist downward, but like upward towards you and praise for like... You know what I mean? Like what a simple concept that you can just carry through your day. Yeah. All these are like taking concepts of like, oh, we make this all about ourselves, this situation all about ourselves and like pointing it back to God. Yep. I think that's the answer to what prayer without ceasing even means. It's like, oh, how do you Mm. pray without ceasing? You can't do that. You know, you got to drive safely and whatever. It's like, (laughs) well, yeah, but inviting God into moments in your day would be if we could get that to be a habit and get that to be a practice, that would be the perfect thing. But Mm. I mean, we're human and we can't always get it right, I guess, but... That Mm -hmm. would be, like, that is the intention to have God be a part of our lives to the extent, and we're not, like, you know, begging for stuff all the day, I guess, but we are just saying, thank you for, thank you for this. Yep. I don't know what to do in this situation. Help me and be with me in this situation. And I I do think he will, he will answer. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I I think that's, there's a beauty in that. I mean, you can pray about anything, you know, like, sometimes... And then there's a liturgy in here about that, too. I, I flipped, I don't have a picture of that one, but I flipped by it, like... Uh, upon someone floating into your mind. And I, and I do that sometimes when I'm just thinking about somebody and I don't know why. It's just like, I'll say a little prayer for him, you know? And right. it, it's, it's or like praying for people I see on the street or like just, I don't know. It's, it's a, again, it's a spiritual discipline that like is I think hard at first because <laughs> I think the natural instinct of the prayer is like, okay, it has to be this like regimented, I'm sitting, I'm crossing my hands and I'm bowing my head sort of thing. But like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's that, I feel like it's closer to like texting. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm in communication with God as much as I can be 
you know, I, I mean, obviously like not all the time, like I'm not a, not a perfect person, but like, you know, when I think about something or somebody, I, I try and just say a little prayer, you know, or, and it's not like a long thing. It's just, again, it's just a spiritual discipline to like continually invite, like you said, invite God in, into your day. Mm-hmm. One thing I've been doing this year, I've been trying to actually be more intentional about prayer in the sense of I have an actual list of what I want to pray about mm. as opposed to just like, oh, random or whatever. And that way, what whatever is on the list, I'll keep going back to it and not forgetting anything. And then I'll actually like have a record. And so I can say, I can definitively say whether or not things were answered. Yeah. And I think already one or two of them have been answered. That's awesome. Something I wouldn't know if I didn't have a list. Yep. Yep. I've noticed that too. It- if you don't keep track, it's super easy to forget where God has provided for you. Um, which maybe that's why he had like people write down stuff in the Old Testament, you know? I don't know. That That's great. I mean, I've, I've always wanted to do a prayer journal. I have a couple of journals that I write prayers in, but like I've never done like a prayer journal. But I know that that's, that can be really helpful to just like keep like visual track, physical track, you know, of of what you've been praying about and and what has happened because of it. There's a a wise person in my life. I'm not sure if they want to be named or not, so I won't. But if you're listening, you know who you are. And you told me if you pray about something and it's answered, don't say, oh, that would have happened anyway. Say, Mm. thank you, God, for answering my prayer. And like, leave it at that. Mm. Because it's so tempting. Oh, that would have happened anyway. But like, for the the one or two things that have have been answered, I'm thinking like, would that have happened anyway? Hmm. This, I don't know about this, but it's like, well, we don't know if it would have happened anyway, but we should give God the credit because maybe it wouldn't have happened anyway. Good thing you prayed about it. Now it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because like literally the my one of the, my prayers was like exactly answered like a couple of weeks wow. after I did. And I, I'm like, okay, uh, I, <laughs> this is pretty, <laughs> like, I don't know if I should say proof or what, but like this it yeah. seems like to be a real thing. <laughs> Praying is a real thing. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, what a time. In this economy? (sighs) (sighs) Too soon. I'm just going to keep saying it. Let's roll right into another thing I've been thinking about as far as spiritual disciplines goes. I've been thinking about the topic of spiritual gifts. Basically, like, what are they? How do you know what yours are and everything? Because there was a sermon at church by our very own CSF, Josh Reynolds, and he mentioned did mention spiritual gifts in that sermon, and it kind of got me thinking about it again. I guess I'm sort of trying to better understand what they are. And I know you've actually taken the test, Joe. So why don't you give me all the answers here? Oh boy. Okay. Well, I'm going back now to see, I took a screenshot of my uh, results, but I mean, yeah, just in general, I mean, the spiritual gifts are just like, I mean, just as a brief, like refresher, essentially it's just ways that you are gifted specifically like in a spiritual way. So, I mean, I know some of them are like wisdom or discernment, you know, or, or just leadership, but yeah, I mean, that said, there is a test that you can take that helps you kind of figure them out. I mean, obviously I feel like it's like any tests, you know, like the Enneagram or anything like that. Like the test helps, but it's not the end all be all. So yeah, it's not the guarantee. Yeah. So don't, don't take it as fact, but you know, it's, it, it is helpful and it, and it was helpful for me for sure. So my top three, it, it just tells you your top three were leadership, serving, and wisdom. It, it is useful though, to look at the actual, like, you know, what the Bible says about it. This is first Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm just going to start in verse four, actually. So it says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. 
To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. At least that's my only knowledge of when Paul talks about it. Just thinking about, you know, what what are you gifted at um, spiritually? Because I think, I mean, he says, he says, everybody gets, like, everybody's given the Spirit, um, but there are specific, you know, ways that that manifests itself in you specifically. So... Yeah, I mean, I would I would say definitely take the test um, just to help get an idea. I don't know. It, it is it is kind of cool. It's like a little Christian Enneagram thing, as if the Enneagram wasn't already Christian enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. I was talking with my mom about this this weekend, but one like interesting thing she pointed out is that if you actually like think about what your gifts are as a person, and then think about how you can use them to further the kingdom of God, like that very well might be some aspect of the spiritual gift. So, like for me. I'm reasonably good when it comes to organization and making things happen. And I don't know if that's explicitly a spiritual gift, but like if you, if there's, if I'm working on something that I think will further the kingdom of God, like, yeah, I'll make it happen. I'll be as organized as I can and try to get it done quickly and everything like that. And I think that's just a, maybe a simple example, but I don't know if that really counts as a spiritual gift or not, but I think we try to th- try to think about things that like you yourself listener are good at that other people aren't good at. And then like, well, God made you like that for a reason. How can you use that in a productive way? Like there are people I know that are really convincing and good at arguing. And so cool. How can you use that for good, not evil? I mean, I think of like people sort of, I mean, even like I think of like Sarah Bynum or Cheryl Clark who are like, they're good at organizational and like administrative stuff. And so they use that within a church, which is really freaking cool to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're all gifted in some way. And like, I I mean, I, I even think of people like Carrie Curry who, is like, he's a, I mean, he owns a car dealership, but he is like one of the best disciplers I've ever seen. You know, I mean, I was discipled by somebody he discipled, you know, that's, that is the (laughs) definition of a good discipler. Um, and so I think, you know, just again, like how can you use your gifts, even if you don't work in a church, you know, how can you use your gifts to further the kingdom? Just like you were saying. Have you read Mr. Curry's book? I have not. I feel really bad because <laughs> I, I feel like I would love it, but I just, I've never sat down and read it. I think I have it too. I think my mom gave it to me, mm-hmm. but yeah, I need to for sure. Put it in your backpack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make it 22 pounds. <laughs> hey, we should link the book in the show notes. Carrie Curry has a book called The Unlikely Discipler. Yeah. Um, and you should read it. You should. Joe, when are you going to become a pastor? Oh my gosh. What kind of a question is that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you just have a way of like connecting things that I I don't quite have. Really? And like being knowledgeable and connecting a lot of information together. And I think I'm getting there, but I'm I'm also far away from getting there. Huh. Uh, you'll become you'll become a worship minister and play the guitar and it'll be great. <laughs> well, I I do really appreciate that. I Yeah, man. I when I think about being like when I honestly with you when I think about being like a like any sort of a paid leader in a church, like it scares me to be honest, because of like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, think about, I mean, James talks about, uh, in, 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 you know, in James, um, not many of you should become leaders, you know, because you're held to a higher standard and like you're responsible for, you're doing it now. Like you, you are more knowledgeable about the Bible than I am and I'm working on it, but like 
whenever we're talking about this, you like pull in scripture in a way that I don't quite know how to do. Mm. But like, yeah, I agree with that because yeah, not all of you, like maybe a lot of you want to become leaders, but like the people that want to become leaders shouldn't do it. So like kick them out yep. and then you're left with all the more humble people and then, you know, make them leaders so they can lead you more humbly and do a hopefully good job. Well, man, I appreciate that. And I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I would say in all of your book reading, just pick a couple of them and, and start going ham, you know, <laughs> I know. I mean, for me, like, and I mean, especially, I think I was talking to Josh Reynolds and he, he was saying how he reads through, um, the epistles, the letters that Paul sent out to churches, like all the way through, just like, like it's a letter, you know what I mean? Because that's how it was written, which is really cool. You mean just one after the other? I would say they're too big for that, but you know, most of them are like four to six or seven chapters long, maybe, um, some of them are shorter than that. And honestly, I think like that's where a lot of the foundational, at least in my experience, I don't know everything. I haven't read all the Bible yet. That um, That's a goal I'm trying to get to. But just like in my limited reading and knowledge, like I think that the New Testament has a, that that is the foundation of modern Christianity. And I think the Old Testament is what sets a lot of it up, you know, and what makes it matter. But that that a lot more is just, that's like Jewish history and like history of how we got to where we are. And it's pretty tough to apply the Old Testament as well. Like, yes, I get yes. there are the Ten Commands. Yes, I get we should not murder and commit adultery and so forth. But mm-hmm. as far as like direct, literal, modern day application, it doesn't really get more. Like, yes, it was written a thousand years ago, but it doesn't get more relevant than that, to be honest. Yeah, I totally get that. Because you can read about like David and Bathsheba, you know what I mean? And be like, oh, well, I shouldn't commit adultery, you know? But like when when Paul is writing to a church and you're reading the letter, and it says, yeah, um, not a hint of sexual immorality or like, you know what I mean? Like when it's somebody's telling you, you like do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Like it's much, it's punchy. Because we can obviously say like, oh, I mean, there, we don't really have like modern day kings in this. Like I can't, I'm not the king. I can't ask like random women to come to my castle and like kill the husbands or whatever. So it's like, yep. it's easy to say like, okay, this is like, I get the idea, but it's like hard to apply it versus Paul. He's just like talking to average people and average guys and saying, okay, here's how we're going to apply this. Go. Absolutely. Which, yeah. And I mean, I hadn't, I have not, (laughs) I hadn't read a gospel all the way through ever until uh, this past summer. I think I finished Mark. And I like, again, like, I think that the, I don't know. I mean, reading scripture is hard, but you'd be surprised. Like, I, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but like when I read it's like, it shouldn't surprise me how much it fills me, you know? (laughs) Um, but it does. And it's like, man, like I enjoyed that more than I would have enjoyed, you know, watching something on my phone, you know? And, and to be honest, I don't do it every night. Like I should do, I should read every day, but I don't. Um, but you know, like just reading about like the life of Jesus and like, cause, cause what I do, I'm trying to work through Exodus, Psalms, um, Luke right now. And I just started first Timothy at the same time. So I just like read a chapter in each of them to keep things a little bit interesting. So three a day. Uh, yeah, I tr- well, <laughs> more like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I try more like but 1. I'm really seven a day. Sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I do not read every day. I should, but I don't, but I mean, like I said, it, it is, it's, <laughs> it's filling, you know? And I mean that, I feel like that's what, you know, that, that is one of the best ways for us to continue in like growth of knowledge and growth, like as, as Christians and, and all this. So 
I don't know. I mean, I would just start going ham on the New Testament, man. That's that's where all the good stuff is. <laughs> what are the two things that like are stereotypically told to you to do in church? Ooh, two things. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy. It's a pretty easy answer. <laughs> Pray and read your Bible. Bingo, you got it. Yes, $1 million to you, sir. It's taken like almost 19 years. I finally started doing that on a regular basis. (laughs) I more recently have like every morning consistently been doing those two things. And yes, it does make a difference. Now, what what happens though, I think this is another thing like the screw tape letter style where I like, yes, I will like usually often be tempted to like, okay, go, like, you better start working on school or, like, you better, like, eat and get going and so you, like, aren't late and everything. Like, I literally think the enemy will do anything he can to mm-hmm. keep me <laughs> from, like, actually doing this practice. But most of the time, it's it's not too big of a deal, but sometimes it's, like, you you feel you like there's some resistance in place. But if you push through, and what I've been doing is 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, not every chapter and every verse is, like, the most applicable in my opinion, but I've been writing down the ones that really like pack a punch and having, and so I have those to look back on now, but you're right. It's like reading scripture is hard. It's, it's almost feels like it's easy to go in this mode where it's like, I don't really fully understand this. So I'm just going to like kind of gloss for a while. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, don't gloss. It might take you 20 minutes to read this one chapter. That's a little dramatic, but it might take you a while. Let's say you want to, I think I've been doing two chapters a day for the most part, but let's say you want to read two chapters. That might take a while. This isn't like fiction where you can just go flip, 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 like I'm going super fast. Like Mm -hmm. this stuff is, is hard to understand. I'm doing it in the quest study Bible where on the side, there's like the most popular questions. And so it gives you answers to them or like, you know, the best answer we know, of course. But mm. so obviously I'll, I'll read through those. In general, I read through all of them because, you know, they're there. So I'm going to read them. And then there's some other like sort of side things. It's like a lot of the, there are small questions on the side, but every now and then, every few pages, like there's this big question. And so it gives like this commentary on it. And so I'm reading through all this stuff. I'm just really trying to like understand it and let it sink in. And now does every verse sink in? No, but like a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. And then I go through the prayer list and yeah. So it's like very basic stuff that you've been told to do since Sunday school. And it's, I'm 19 and I'm finally doing it. <laughs> it's funny. I feel like it's, it's popular for a reason, you know, <laughs> but it has to be like your motivation to do it. It can't be like, Oh, you know, your Sunday school teacher is like, go do it. It's like, no, you have to actually want to do it. And once you actually want to do it, then it becomes your own faith and you start to learn for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't agree more. Is it fun when like in Ephesians, Paul is like, yeah, uh, no crude talk or like coarse joking ever. Uh, no, it's not fun to read that because like that challenges my everyday life. You know, it's like, it's challenging, but like that is, I don't know. It's like when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, like he is the only real fulfillment we'll ever have, you know, which is kind of a scary thing, but like, it's that is it's the only lasting thing. And so it it shouldn't surprise us when, you know, we actually commit time to him and learning about him and what he says. Like it shouldn't surprise us that that is filling, but it does, you know, because we I feel like we spend so much of our time looking for the next thing to like occupy us and you know, that sort of thing, which man, I mean, I better be careful when I'm gonna get back and do a rant about, you know, our attention spans <laughs> like I usually do. No, please. That's what this show is. The College Drive. We're renaming it the Your Attention Span is Bad and Here's What You Should Do Next. That's right. That's right. I mean, you can rant a little if you want. I've been thinking about it more this week, too. Like, yes, more than usual. There's not a lot to say. I just, essentially, I feel like we are all 
searching for things that won't fill us up. And I think Live No Lies will help you. We'll, we'll explain some of that, to be honest. It did for me. And I'm excited to hear what you think about it. But yeah, it's like the, the song from Hamilton, You'll Never Be Satisfied. Mm. Uh, they were listening to that the other day and I was thinking about it. But I was like, yeah, <laughs> we will not be satisfied. Like the things we want to satisfy us, so like they won't do it. We'll, we'll buy these shiny toys or whatever and maybe happy for a little while or whatever. But then we go back to being unsatisfied, which is like a bummer. But we have to do the best we can for like 90 years or whatever it happens to be. And that's where this like idea of like sanctification, I don't know if you've like heard of that or it is the process of (laughs) I am a human and I suck and I'm going to try to be better (laughs) and like do like the spiritual disciplines and all this stuff. And, but you know, eventually I'm going to like screw it up because I'm a human and I suck, you know? And so like, it's just this back and forth and, And it's weird because like that almost makes, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this idea that like God is like a credit card, you know, like you mess up and you kind of, you just swipe it and it's like, oh, okay, cool. Like he paid for it, whatever. But like, you know, when, when I read in Romans for the first time that like Paul was like, yeah, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase, you know, by no means, like we, we should, (laughs) like we died to sin, like all of this language about how sanctification is it is repetitive, but like it is the process of like God changing your heart over time and no one's perfect at it and no one's supposed to be perfect at it because if we were, we wouldn't need Jesus. Bada bing, bada boom. There's your nice bow on it. <laughs> Let's circle back around to books and like, yeah, if you want to talk about attention spans, like here we go. So I think there are three dystopian books that stand up as being good ones. Like people consider them to be the good ones. There is 1984 by George Orwell. I think people are pretty familiar with that one, generally speaking. What The one I did this week was Fahrenheit 451, which I know you maybe said was on your list, Joe, by Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a third one which I that people talk about that I have not ever done, which is called Brave New World. And so I'll do that one eventually. That one's supposedly a little bit similar to 1984. But all like this dystopian things, imagining like taking where society is going to the extreme and imagining what that would be like. So I'll just briefly talk to you about what happens in Fahrenheit 451. No spoilers. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually, well, I'm going to spoil like the first chapter, but not anything meaningful will be spoiled. I just have to sort of set it up. Okay, cool. So you have this main character named Guy Montag, and he is a fireman. However, in the future, firemen don't put out fires because all of the houses are made of fireproof material, so you don't need to do it. But instead, what they do is they are called to houses that have books, and they set fire to the house and burn all the books. They do a very different thing. They don't put out the fires. They go around and when the government figures out that you have books in your home, they go and destroy all the books. This is because the books of the world are considered to be like, oh, outdated information and, you know, we don't need these anymore. Like, we're good. They spread dangerous ideas and everything. So the government said no more books. They're all they're all getting burned. Now, like, this is okay, this is something interesting that happens. Let's Let me try to see. This book was written in 1953 or like published at least in 1953. So it's always interesting to see like when people are writing in the 40s and 50s about the future and like, oh, here's what it'll be like and whatever. They write, they write all this stuff, but it's like, it's an extrapolation of the current technology taken to the extreme. The main character, Winston of 1984, he's in the year 1984 and he's like working at a desk 
and, you know, oh, shuffling papers around and like his job is to destroy information, slight spoilers, but his job is to like rewrite papers and like change the newspapers around and everything. And like, I feel like what people don't fully understand is like, if you're writing about the future, you're doing so in like language you understand. So like, if we're talking about the future, we say like, oh, I bet they have really fast cars and like they have an iPhone that's really fast and takes good picture. It's like, no, we've, we've moved on that. We don't have cars. We have trains. When we use like glasses and VR headsets instead of phones, it's like we've moved on <laughs> Fahrenheit 451. I believe it's supposed to be taking place in the year 2049. What the author could not have known is that, oh, the internet would be there. This is the equivalent of firemen going around like deleting pages from the internet and deleting books because like I think books are the closest thing to pages of the internet of the time. But basically all I'm trying to say is like when imagining the future, we sometimes make it more simple than it is because we don't have the technology that will soon be invented. And like in modern day terms, they would destroy the books and like basically delete websites and things like that they didn't agree with and, you know, take away your Kindle or whatever. Hmm. And so one day he is walking around in his neighborhood or like getting home from work or whatever. And he sees that there's a new neighbor, a teenage girl named Clarice. And so he like gets to talking to her and everything. And he realizes like she's this really free thinking and like interesting spirit because like she doesn't think about things the same way other people do. One quote I wrote down is, they want, this is a Clary speaking, by the way, quote, they want to know what I do with all my time. I tell them that sometimes I just sit and think, end quote. Now the, and this is, goes back to our attention spans. Like, what do you do with all hmm. your time? Mm, just, I don't know, sit around and think. The author's kind of criticizing people being addicted to TV and everything because one of the, the hallmarks of the society is that they have like these TVs that are as big as walls and like the wife of the main character, Guy Montag, is like always wanting to get the fourth one in. So like all four walls will have like TV on them going all the time and everything. Cause it's like, Oh, one blank wall. That's no good. We need, we, we can't have three giant TVs. We need four giant TVs. So, you know, 360 degrees of TV. So kind of the author's criticizing people being addicted there. Basically I won't spoil anymore, but once he like sees how she is acting and everything and like, Oh, she's more, she's not really letting anyone like tell her what to think or anything. And she's just not being indoctrinated by TV and just sort of living her life and looking at trees and, and twirling around in the forest or whatever. Hmm. So he starts he starts to sort of rethink his own life and sort of be more existential about like what his job is and like the damage he's doing and everything. So that's what the book is about. I'll give you a couple of other other quotes. Quote, whirl man's mind around about so fast under the pumping hands of publishers, exploiters, broadcasters that the centrifuge flings off all unnecessary time-wasting thought, end quote. It reminds me of that CGP Grey video, Rules for Rulers, where he talks about how in a democracy it benefits the people in power to have, uh, you know, functioning citizens who are like being smart and stuff because those are the people who are going to put you back in power. So like, I feel like in a democracy it is more, you know, advantageous for the powers that be to have, you know, give college grants so that people can get smart and have jobs and pay money for you to be in office, you know. But also, I mean, well, but then in, in the opposite, like in a dictatorship, like you don't want smart people in your in your thing because they're gonna overthrow you, you know. So I don't know. It's a it's a it's a it's definitely a thought. I will say that. Quote: The televisor is real. It is immediate. It has dimension. It tells you what to think and blasts it in. It must be right. It seems so right. It rushes you on so quickly to its own conclusions. Your mind hasn't time to protest. End quote. So again, this is another like, oh, TV bad, whatever, internet bad. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, you can maybe criticize that or whatever. But I think the point is like things on TV or on the internet, like we need the saying, not everything on the internet is true because like, oh, but it's written down, it's in text, it's on the internet, it must be true. Otherwise, no one would have put it there. It's like there's a, maybe a healthy amount of skepticism uh, and don't be quick to be told what to think. 
think slowly and and move on your own time when it comes to thinking thoughts. Yeah. So there's some interesting stuff in here. I won't spoil the plot, but you should definitely finish it. It it was a medium length, I think. Well, actually, I say that. I don't even, like, that's the problem with Kindles. I don't even know the exact page <laughs> count. 256 is the exact page count. But it, it went by quite fast. I need to read that book. I need to read 1984. I need to read Animal Farm. Um, I feel like there's a ton of them that I need to read still, but we'll see if I ever do. There's also, like, a book that I don't recommend. <laughs> Well, well, it's actually hard to say if I do or not. This felt like a very, you've been assigned this book for literature class kind of book. I read one called The Haunting of Hill House, which is by Shirley Jackson. Oh, that's a Netflix series too, isn't it? Yes. I kept searching for things about it and getting the Netflix series. I was like, no, that's not what I want. Stop. Give me the book. Give me the original book. Same thing for Queen's Gambit. You try to search about it and it's like, no, not the show, the book. I think it's, many people think it's the canonical haunted house story. It's a very, very spooky tale where they go into a haunted house and very spooky things happen. Mm. That's what I'll say. And I don't want to give away. But it's, it's like very, something about it is just like very, very unnerving. Like the, the writing sort of confuses you and unnerves you. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't recommend it, especially not before bed. <laughs> I was going to say. Which I actually didn't read it before bed. I read it during the day. I don't think I could do that. Because I'm not brave enough to read the Haunted House story at night. But it was interesting. If had, Joe, have you ever read The Yellow Wallpaper? I have not. Similar vibes as The Yellow Wallpaper if anyone's read it. Uh, that's just a short story that's like unreliable narrator and you have you don't know what's true and what isn't but it just adds to the spookiness so yeah read these books or don't <laughs> in this economy <laughs> <laughs> no can't just force it in in this economy <laughs> i just i'm speaking really loudly into my mic and clipping it in this economy have fun with that zachary when you edit this